Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today we've got one of our special episodes in collaboration with Advances in Simulation. And I'm going to be talking about two papers with two lovely guests, and our focus is going to be around hierarchy in healthcare, how healthcare professionals experience it, how we can use simulation to understand, research, and explore hierarchy, and maybe conjecture a little bit about what we should do about it. So I'll talk about the papers shortly, but first of all, I want to introduce my guests. Uh, First up, Taryn Taylor, uh, an obstetrician-gynaecologist, who did her medical school and residency at West University, that's in Canada, uh, and then has done a PhD in health professions education through Maastricht uh, in Europe. She's done a fellowship in simulation education at the University of Ottawa, uh, and now she splits her time between some clinical work, some researching, uh, and in fact, I'm going to quote her bio here. Her research explores the nature and implications of fatigue and clinical performance of physicians and trainees and novel approaches to simulation-based research that seek to enhance interprofessional and interdisciplinary team performance. Welcome, Taryn. Thanks very much. Does that capture you, do you think? I think so. That's, I, I wear a few hats at, at once often, so yeah, yeah, that does, absolutely. Yeah, and it seems that the, those variable hats combine very nicely to uh, make you in a position to study some of the things we're going to be talking about today. So this is good. Uh, My other guest is Adam Garber, who's also obstetrician-gynecologist. He's uh, now working at the University of Ottawa, and he did an academic fellowship in simulation there at the Skills and Simulation Centre. He's also done a master's degree in health professions education through McMaster, all of these places in Canada. And now his current research, and again, I'm going to quote from his bio, focuses on the use of communication skills to handle urgent situations, manage hierarchy, and foster collaboration amongst interdisciplinary teams. Also sounds like great work to be doing. How are you, Adam? Excellent. Thanks so much for uh, having me. All right. Well, why don't we, before we even get into these papers, I'm just so interested because I do think if you work in healthcare, you know something and you experience hierarchy and power dynamics in the workplace. And again, healthcare is hardly unique. Everybody does. Uh, But we've certainly had an increasing explicit focus, I think, on that. Can I just ask you both, and maybe Taryn, you could go first. uh, How did you kind of get interested in these power dynamics and hierarchy topics? I think, I mean, partly it's because of all of the hats that I wear, right? So obstetrics is known as a fairly deeply hierarchical environment, although, as you said, it's hard not to be within a hierarchy when you're working in healthcare. Um, So I have the lived experience there. And and as you mentioned, I I actually work in the center in which I trained. So um, I have existed on many levels of that hierarchy. Um, And so... There's, there's the lived experience, which certainly uh, got me interested in the first place. And then um, being a qualitative researcher, I'm really interested in studying kind of messy and nuanced social phenomena and hierarchy fits the bill there. And then as a sim educator, of course, I'm really keen to understand kind of team dynamics and figure out how we can enhance them. Yeah, we certainly know as simulation educators, this is one of those factors that we're always dealing with. Uh, and 
unlike in the clinical environment, often get to explicitly talk about, which mm-hmm. is probably an advantage. Uh, and as you say, and this is going to come up, I think, in our discussion of the papers, this isn't a place where we can find a lot of p-values uh, or randomized <laughs> control trials. It's just not that kind of phenomenon. Uh, Adam, can I ask you the same question? How did you get into this? I know you've had a similar kind of simulation background, but uh, other things for you? Yeah, I mean, I suppose... Um of course, as one moves through their master's in health professions education, it comes up in the world of academia. I think uh, Dylan Bold and his team was doing some work locally in Ottawa uh, and exploring this phenomenon in a similar way. Um, and so there was probably some local buzz around the topic as well. Um, but I think my intrigue in the topic perhaps uh, came much earlier. Of course, as mentioned, we all face it and have probably been on either end of it uh, and all along the way uh, in its spectrum. But I remember as a early PGY2, that is to say a second year resident, uh, being in the operating room and during the preoperative safety checklist, the staff surgeon said, everyone stop. If anyone sees me do anything stupid today, please speak up, please tell me. And that was... um, Glenn Posner, uh, simulation educator and leader in his own right, and has been on the podcast before, of course. Um, but uh, that really flipped the switch in uh, with respect to intrigue in the sense that there was clearly something larger uh, at hand here that he knew uh, and was trying to actively combat, and I just hadn't seen that before. And so, of course, uh, you know, that inevitably led to reading and further exploration and ultimately ideas and the desire to explore. Mm, Excellent. I I feel like we should have taken a small wager on how long it would take for Glenn Posner's name to come up. Uh, So I'm so glad you told us that story because I feel like he's virtually involved in this conversation and has been an influence on all three of us. Uh, Just again, the last thing I wanted to just talk about before we got into the papers, because it is a thread through all of them, is this idea about using simulation as a testbed for exploring social phenomena. And I do think as educators, we're often used to the idea that we are somehow trying to fix or shape or interact with social phenomena in a debrief room. But this really sets a new level of thinking about it and making simulation good enough to reproduce this so-called sociologic fidelity. That is exciting, isn't it, Taryn? Absolutely. I think Again, like most of my earlier qualitative research, we really focus on gaining this information with interviews, and that's very well and good in its own right. But, you know, for for our study, there's no way we could have gotten the richness of the response from our participants had we not exposed them to the simulation experience. Um, and, And we spent so much time designing that simulation because, as you said, that sociological fidelity is key. Uh, We didn't want them... Uh, or we rather we wanted them to really feel like this is something that they could have experienced on the labor and delivery floor. And in fact, many of them said this was very reminiscent of their lived experiences, but we got to sort of do a little bit of slow motion um, and reflection in the debriefing afterwards, which is rarely the case on the floor. 
Mm, yeah, so interesting. All right, we're going to return back to this topic. Uh, so why don't we get into these papers? And as I said, this is part of our uh, collaboration with the journal Advances in Simulation. Both these papers were published within a fairly short space of time over the last uh, three months. Uh, so if you are interested in that, obviously, uh, free and open access to see the full text uh, versions of these papers. And uh, we will, of course, put them in the notes accompanying this episode. But I'm going to start with, uh, well, Taryn is on both papers, but I'm going to start with one where you're the senior author. Uh, Rachel Pack is the first author of this one. Uh, and the title of this paper is Maybe I'm Not That Approachable, Using Simulation to Elicit Team Leaders' Perceptions of Their Role in Facilitating Speaking Up Behaviours and Advances in Simulation in 2022. So I'm just going to give a super short version of what this uh, uh, article looks at. So it's called Maybe I'm Not That Approachable, and that is a quote from one of the uh, participants. But essentially, obstetric attendings, consultants, depending on where you come from, participated in some simulations uh, that involved maternity-type emergencies, and they participated as, uh, I think, what we might call partial confederates. And in fact, they were primed to perform certain, and I'm going to use the terminology of the paper here, challenge moments or scripted errors. So things like making a drug error, things like disappearing from the uh, emergency a little bit early before things had been uh, actually fixed, not being available. So they were actually... Uh, primed to do these things that clearly were problematic from the point of view of the performance of the team. And they were doing that within an interdisciplinary team that involved med residents, midwives, family physicians and nurses who did not know that these were scripted moments. And then afterwards, the participants all got interviewed. And uh, in short, the senior obstetricians were overall shocked at how their team members did not speak up or question their actions. Uh, so, all right, so uh, this is the haiku version of your paper, Taryn. <laughs> how have I done? <laughs> I'm excellent, actually. That's probably the most succinct I've ever heard it summarized. So thank you. <laughs> all right, well, give us a little bit of a background uh, on, you know, how you came up with this uh, methods. Sure. I mean, the the um, experience I had, and I know we'll talk about um, the paper that Adam's lead author on in a moment, but, you know, lived experience certainly, but but this study that, that Adam and I had done earlier where, um, you know, it was very evident that these residents uh, struggled to speak up when there was a, an obvious professionalism or, or um, clinical error had me thinking a lot about um, sort of what do we know about what inspires people to, to speak up and Certainly, there's a large body of literature and simulation looking at really focusing on these these team members that we some people call subordinate roles um, and trying to get them to to speak up when there's patient safety concerns. And we know that it's difficult and we know that the existing literature has has tried to just really teach people, you know, to use the correct script or to be brave. Um, and there's been very little focus on what's the role of the faculty member or the team leader in creating these an environment in which it's not an act of bravery to ask a question or to speak up. And so we wanted to use simulation in a way to kind of create an opportunity for our faculty members to see that 
it might not be all that easy for them to for their team members to speak up to them um and as i said earlier while it would be very easy for for me to you know conduct some interviews and ask people like you know do you when if you were to do something wrong do you think your team members would speak up um you know we learned from this paper that a lot of our participants would have said yes absolutely i'm an approachable person you know i'm not rude i don't yell i'm i'm not a bully um but after having gone through the simulation um their perception of their own approachability shifted tremendously. So um, that was sort of what had inspired it was this idea that we, we need to shift the conversation and kind of expand the speaking up uh, conversation to include uh, this idea of listening down or at least acknowledge that there's a role of the team leader in, in creating um, the ability to speak up. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting, isn't it? And I think uh, in the background, you make this clear. And I know that my simulcast colleague, Ben Simon, often you get him on a rant about this, about the speaking up training. Uh, And it is just tone deaf to the complexity of barriers there. And in fact, we double down on it, don't we? In fact, I even heard myself in a debrief yesterday, chastising the nurse and saying, come on, why can't you explain to me why you can't speak up? And I thought, hang on, this is a little bit ironic. (laughs) Uh, and and we've put so much effort into it and ticked boxes and had online learning. And in fact, again, Eve Purdy, uh, when we did this paper at our local community practice, said we need to spend zero more dollars on speaking up training uh, and we need to totally shift the focus. And yet you can, you, you know, we have got some empathy. People are trying to do something and this seems to be the way we could do this. Uh, as though this was just a skill and not a complex uh, sociologic phenomena that we're up against. Can I ask you the question about these scripted moments? Uh, Something that didn't really come up was how did these uh, senior people feel about playing this trickery role? I'm so glad you asked. They were so uncomfortable. Um, they were uncomfortable um, because, again, many of them entered into this experience with kind of their own self-perception of being, you know, safe, competent individuals uh, that, you know, that would never do this. And yet, I would say many of them in the debriefs reflected further to say, you know, truly on a bad night, I could see myself doing one or more of these things. Um, and that made it even more frightening that their team members kind of just went along with with it, or we're not very explicit in, you know, in raising concerns along the way. So definitely it was, it was uncomfortable for them when I initially made the request. And it was even more uncomfortable for them afterwards when they realized that their, their initial self-perceptions and perceptions of their team members were, a, were a little bit off. Uh, as you say, these weren't extreme, and you make some point about that in the paper about these weren't totally egregious bullying you know, being a really unpleasant person. These were just, and I'm just going to read them out here because I think these are important. One, the first scripted error was a delayed response to a call for help, which you um, describe as an unprofessionalism, Uh, incorrectly identifying the fetal position, um, which might not be as uh, well understood by all of us, but I think I get the idea. That's a sort of clinical error. Uh, And then you had a procedural checklist error when they were supervising a forceps-assisted delivery failure to ensure the proper safety steps were taken. Uh, recommending a contraindicated medication uh, and abandoning the team in a crisis, so leaving the scenario prematurely. And, and I think you said in the paper that, you know, these were things that you just dreamt up from your own experience. 
Absolutely. I think we there was a couple of us involved in designing the simulation, but certainly uh, I have been involved in versions and variations of, of all of these things over the course of, of training and practice, certainly. Now, obviously, uh, there's a whole science to how you do data collection and analysis that is going to be beyond the remit of this podcast, but uh, there is a lovely description of your methods uh, in the paper, which I would invite people at any phase of qualitative research to read for our own edification, Uh, but to really, uh, again, reduce it to its basics. uh, You identified four broad themes. Uh, One of them was called approachability redefined, uh, which goes to what you were just talking about, is that some of these senior people realized they had to go a lot further than they realized to be truly approachable. It wasn't just a matter of being a nice guy or girl. Uh, The second theme was availability and presence and the idea about signaling your availability through actually being physically there and other uh, signs. Uh, The third theme was uncertainty and thinking aloud and being transparent about decisions rather than just processing them internally and then saying, here it is. And then the last theme was about vulnerability and debriefing. Uh, And again, obviously a lot of data in there, Taryn, but maybe you can give us a little bit more insight into any of those themes and maybe pick out a couple that were your favorites. Sure. I mean, it was interesting to us as a research team uh, that these these building blocks, which we called them, these sort of overlapping building blocks that you mentioned, are seemingly fairly simple in some cases. Um, not always easy to uh, implement, certainly, that the vulnerability piece and the expressing uncertainty and our participants, the faculty participants that uh, we interviewed, were honest about some of the struggles they had in, in making that a reality. But, but overall, I mean, I think there was I, those three building blocks gave me hope um, that this approachability piece and and really priming our leader our faculty leaders to to create you know environments in which it's not an act of bravery to speak up is certainly doable I think what I really appreciated about the third theme the vulnerability piece um, and the debriefing was that some of our faculty members talked about how that was their way to kind of repair when there had been kind of a, a breach of their own approachability. So they talked about how sometimes things happen quickly. And obviously, we're very familiar with that in healthcare. And there's an urgent issue, they had to respond quickly, and maybe they didn't do the think out loud. And maybe they did something that um, on the surface is uh, might have appeared unsafe to some of the team members, which could have made them uncomfortable. And the fact that um, they can't stop, they can't always pause in the moment to explain their thought process, but that they do make an effort to do that debrief afterwards. And and certainly that was echoed by the other participants who felt like that was something that they appreciated um, and that they found helpful for reestablishing the approachability and, and the knowing that they could ask questions in that follow-up debrief was really valuable. Um, the other piece that stood out for me was how m- much the the team members, the subordinate team members that were involved in the study felt that this was an important study to do. So we did have a resident, and I'll share a quote with you, um, who said, essentially, this simulation, this experience is 
important for the consultants to see because I think they expect us to just feel comfortable speaking up about these things and that's not the case. So I think although we didn't design the study to be an intervention per se, some of the participants really felt like this was an an intervention of sorts or at least intended to be an eye-opening experience for the staff. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting. We're going to come back to this when we think about what to do from here. And I think it's really important to say this was an exploratory study, but I'm sure it had a profound effect on the small number of people who actually got to participate in it uh, at both sides. And you're right. And again, uh, I I think there's lots of things in the quotes there that uh, illustrate these things beautifully. All right, well, let's hold these thoughts here for a minute. And before we go on to your paper, Adam, uh, you know, you were doing some very similar things in the meantime, but did you have any reflections on uh, listening to Taryn's description and, and reading her paper that you would uh, add as a, as a reader and interested in the same topic? Well, I was I enjoyed the paper thoroughly for many reasons, but I was struck perhaps by how clever um, the specific design was, uh, I think one of the master strokes was in having these prescripted challenge moments, uh, which makes it safe for the faculty member to then experience. It's sort of like having an out of body experience where they're able to step back and watch how people behave in response to them without it actually being their own behavior. Um, And uh, I think that provided a a great deal of power and was incredibly clever in terms of providing a safe simulation experience to faculty, which is not an easy thing to do. Mm, Absolutely. It's very nuanced, as you say, clever. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to your paper then, yours and your team's. and the, because this this issue about the methods and how we create this sociologic fidelity continues to be explored through that. So uh, the title of this paper, uh, Garba et al., including Taryn and Glenn Posner, as previously discussed, is called Facing Hierarchy, a Qualitative Study of Residence Experiences in an Obstetrical Simulation Scenario. Again, Advances in Simulation 2022. Uh, and again, here's my uber ver- short version. Uh, so now the attention turns to look at the experience and behaviours of the residents and trainees in these scenarios and then presumably in the real world. And I'm going to quote the research question here. What are the processes that obstetric gynaecology residents describe engaging in when faced with a simulation scenario involving an erroneous and potentially dangerous clinical decision by a medical supervisor? So these were simulations, a bit different to Taryn's study, uh, that actually operated within an existing curriculum. So the obstetric residents participated and they didn't realise that the senior was deliberately making mistakes. And so there was a fair bit of deception involved in that. And the questions for them was, what did they do? What did they think and feel? Uh, we'll come back to the to the findings, first of all, but can I just pause here, Adam? And uh, again, you... You, you gave some nice uh, compliment to Taryn on her methods, but yours pretty interesting too. And I think it really did help to create this uh, sociologic fidelity. Tell me how you went through the process of deciding on those. Well, this is a scenario that uh, we have run in the past. Um, and, uh, you know, we cleaned it up certainly, uh, for the sake of this, um, study, but yeah, this was a study that was embedded within an existing curriculum. So our residents and, uh, 
obstetrics and anesthesia residents, in this case, just obstetrics residents. And uh, nurses come to the uh, simulation lab and participate. Uh, and this case was the third case of three in this simulated half day. Uh, in each of these cases, the senior resident uh, would be performing in the hot seat or participating, I should say, in the hot seat as the staff physician and our junior resident would be participating as the senior resident. Of course, in the third of these three cases, which was the case that we've studied, um, these uh, senior residents were asked instead to be an embedded actor uh, in the case, uh, having been given a script the night before uh, and uh, being asked to make a specific uh, and single medical error, which was to expectantly manage uh, a fetal heart tracing that clearly uh, indicated the need for a cesarean section. Uh, so that was uh, how we built in, I suppose, the deception. Uh, upon running through the case, we debriefed it afterwards per usual, uh, where the deception was immediately um, revealed, of course. Uh, and uh, we went through a routine debriefing using the Pearl's framework and subsequently the residents who participated, that is to say the junior residents, third and fourth year residents, uh, were asked to participate in semi-structured interviews. Mm, yeah, so interesting and tricky because, of course, they'd built up this trust with them in these first two scenarios, which just felt like every day. So it really did create it. And then uh, there was no reason to suspect that they would be faced with someone deliberately making this error. So it very much was like a day at work. Uh, so as you described, they went through that process, they had their debrief, and then you really went deep and said, okay, well, let's talk about how you deal with uh, this hierarchy. And the first finding that you had was that they did really experience that uh, hierarchy sensation and the barriers to speaking up. And then the this is one of the People have explored, obviously, the idea about hierarchy in the past, but I think this was just so beautifully set out about the incredibly nuanced and multi-layered things that so-called subordinates do to try and deal with the situation they find themselves in. And as you said, this there was nothing subtle about this error. Uh, I'm not an obstetrician, but I do know this is life and death stuff. This is the baby going to die unless you do the right thing here. And the senior person was clearly doing the wrong thing. And uh, the three sort of broad categories here was one was messaging, which was more just sort of really trying to make sure that the senior person knew the situation. I'm just going to give you more information just in case you've missed this fact that the fetal heart rate is 50. Uh, I'm just going to really make sure that. Uh, but then it was, uh, as you've put it, I think deflecting is the word. It's kind of like, well, if I've told them, it's up to them, uh, which obviously sets them up for a whole deal of moral injury if they don't make the right decision. But that's sort of some people just left it there. And then there was the sort of in, what you've called interpretive strategies where they're kind of leading it up there, which is, hmm, should we, I wonder why we're not going for a Caesar or previously I've been for a Caesar in these situations with Dr. X. Uh, so there's some of these sorts of, uh, you know, trying to get the right things. And then you've got the advocative, much more proactive things. And the thing I found most interesting in this was uh, trying to find friends like, oh, well, I know what I do here. And that is, I get the senior midwife or the senior nurse or whoever it is in the scenario and I help them do my work for me because they may well have more power and I get some allies and it just this was so beautifully laid out and clearly I've seen all these things happen but you've put some names to them uh, so tell me more about the data collection analysis it must have been both fun and terrifying 
I, it was all of those things. Yes. First of all, again, thank you for so wonderfully summarizing everything. Uh, and, uh, it was, it was fun. It was almost relatable as you've mentioned, uh, or, or aspects of it, I should say felt familiar. Um, and, and, uh, absolutely terrifying, um, in the sense that, uh, there were aspects of the communication strategies on that spectrum that you highlighted that seemed perhaps intuitive, but valuable in setting, setting a label or, or in the labels revealing themselves. Um, more unsettling perhaps um, are some of the uh, coping mechanisms that uh, were highlighted as residents reflected on their experience. Uh, and of course I can relate very much to drafting an ally, having a resident, uh, having been a resident, um, and at three in the morning when my clinical plan differs slightly from what the faculty physician wants to do, um, I absolutely walked over to the charge nurse and asked for a hand and some support. Uh, and I think that, um, is a, perhaps a bit more of a nuanced one, um, and is sort of an outwards behavior, but m more concerning might be some of the inwards behaviors of, for example, convincing yourself that it's actually not as urgent that it is, or deciding for yourself that perhaps, uh, you're not the most responsible physician and ultimately responsible for how this patient does. And, the ownership and the conviction, um, or I should say the principles of ownership and conviction are really the things we hope to bolster, foster, and grow as residents move through training. Uh, and to see that the seemingly opposite machinations were at work internally uh, was, was fascinating. I know, and it's it's quite shocking, isn't it? And it speaks to other dynamics in healthcare, I think. And you can see when people really feel so under the pump, they start they cannot re retain a patient focus. They then just start thinking about who's going to be to blame here, who's going to wear this, and you can see the discourse just totally shifts towards whose responsibility is it, and people somehow internally rationalise the fact that a patient baby, whatever, might die or come to harm. Uh, and as long as it's not their fault, then they can sleep at night. And and that is very toxic and obviously sets us all up for problematic things. But you can see how it happens. It's the end point of exactly this situation. So, Taryn, you were obviously involved in the analysis of this as well. I, I don't know exactly how your research team worked, but I suspect as uh, by this point a fairly senior qualitative researcher, you got right in, into that as well. Were there other things that you took away from this experience? Yeah, I mean, it was really fascinating data, certainly, I think, um, including how how sort of readily, even though they were in a simulated environment, you know, these residents were were really feeling that that social pressure to go along with what this senior resident playing the role of staff uh, was willing to do. Um, I guess the other thing that I would add is that all of these strategies we saw play out in our subsequent study. Um, and it wasn't just residents, right? It was midwives and, and nurses and um, and family physicians as well. But that drafting allies piece is really, 
is really interesting. And I think, you know, Adam and I had a lot of discussion about it while we were doing the analysis, um, you know, sort of being conscious not to put a value judgment on what they were doing as we were doing that analysis. Um, but but noticing that that drafting allies piece um, is is a strategy that people use and, you know, neither good nor bad, but certainly effective. Um, and so, yeah, I think it uh, it's an important piece of work to kind of contribute to this bigger conversation. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I'm happy to put a value judgment. I think drafting allies is a good idea. Uh, you know, but you can, and you can see people learn that very quickly. You don't need to be very long in your training to work out that there are other sources of power than yours. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I guess the question now for us is what do we do with these papers? Both of them are exploratory. And I think this is an important point to make. You're not making the point that everyone should go about doing these scenarios to teach their senior people how to be more approachable or to teach the juniors how to use multi-layered strategies for dealing with the hierarchy. I think we've now got some information and the questions are, do we think about, have we got educational interventions as a result? Have we got simulation-based interventions as a result? Have we got other strategies that we think we need to do? I can't imagine that you haven't had some conjecture about that. Uh, let's go the other way again. Taryn, you first and then you, Adam. Sure. I mean, it even, so in terms of the the sort of educational next steps, I think uh, our faculty members who participated some of them very explicitly expressed an interest in further training um, to say, you know, if this is how people are, so I'll back up a bit and say that they acknowledge that some of their team members were challenging them, though, in a very nuanced and, and indirect way. And they found that concerning because, you know, on and off day where they're tired or stressed or distracted, those new, those indirect challenges, as we called them, were, were probably not going to land, but they wanted some training to understand, yeah, how do I, how do I pay attention to those things? What are the red flags that I need to be on the lookout for? Yes, you know, one takeaway is that I need to work on creating um, an environment in which speaking up is not an act of bravery, and also recognizing that that is uh, that's the long game, um, and that it's very easy to uh, misstep in in that. Like this approachability construct is is fragile. Um, that how how can I pay attention and at least pause when I hear someone ask a question or um, you know gesture, you know, to, are you sure you don't want this? Or can I try this? Those were sort of the pieces that they wanted more training on. And so that certainly bolstered, um, you know, my sense that this is a, a solvable problem um, in, in the long term. Yeah, uh, yes, so interesting, isn't it? And because as you say, if you read that paper about the uh, messaging strategies, and then you start to just take a pause when someone says, here's some more information. And your first reaction is, of course, I know that. But actually what they're doing is something else, which is saying, here's more information. But what I really mean is, uh, I think you should be doing something with that information that you're not doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Adam, what do you think? I mean, obviously, it's going to be a uh, interesting thing to design simulations if we now start thinking about that as an intervention. Uh, do you think that's what we need to do? Or do you think there's now more... I guess, straightforward education or training experiences that we can design that don't have to be like this with deception and interesting uh, scenarios? I think, yeah, it's a great question. Um, I wear several hats, but my primary tool is simulation. 
Um, so I will be, I will try hard not to, um, state that simulation will fix everything. Um, I do, you know, I do think I'll start with simulation. I think most immediately, you know, we are systemically most set up to teach learners. We are less set up to teach teachers, uh, as Taryn was alluding to. Um, and so starting with the learners, I do think simulations such as these, um, can be informed by some of the findings. Uh, I think that can serve to deepen the debriefing conversations that we have. I think it can serve to provide some insight uh, into uh, one's own styles from a messaging perspective, one's own growth as they trace themselves from a, perhaps messaging to interpretive to advocative, um, and how one might manage for themselves internally uh, that tension and that conflict. And I do think some insight to learner can be very valuable. Um, over and above the efforts that have been made thus far to teach the, you know, two challenge rule or, 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 or others to, as Taryn said, bolster the subordinate. Um, but I do hope that, that we start to work on novel curriculum for faculty. Um, I think clearly, you know, based on Taryn's work, there is an appetite um, for it and increasingly, hopefully an openness to it. Um, and, uh, I think it's critically important and certainly I may say quickly that as a simulation educator, I often feel like we, as the ones running the simulation learn the most. And, uh, certainly it has sensitized me to the moments when a resident is telling me that they want to do something that is different than what I've already articulated, Right. I know that either perhaps and hopefully they feel very comfortable with me or they are so concerned about this patient that they're willing to take on an incredible amount of perceived personal risk just to say something. And I'm more sensitized inevitably to those mental gymnastics that residents are going through at each given moment, uh, you know, just to... Uh, over and above the clinical, the, you know, challenge inherent to the clinical task, just to communicate the information they're communicating. And I think that we need to work to build curriculum to educate the staff uh, on that. And perhaps that's in part with simulations. Uh, but even a PowerPoint presentation at a departmental business meeting uh, would go further to increase insight to this phenomenon than what we're doing now. Yes, and that's a really well-made point, Adam. Uh, you know, we have we just need to really refocus the attention, and I think there is somewhere in between those two things as well, where we you know trigger videos or something like that, and point and illustrating uh, how these mental gymnastics manifest uh, in the face of the um, or, or for the relevant senior people. Um, Tara and I worry that uh, we would have a process where we asked consultants or attendings rather to attend one of these things and I almost feel like anyone that puts up their hand to do it probably doesn't need to come uh, <laughs> how, can I just ask you what about this engagement speak big engagement piece because this is going to be the trick isn't it the people who are maybe not that approachable uh, 
maybe wouldn't be interested in learning how to be more approachable. Without a doubt. I think that's, that is the challenge certainly that we face. I mean, even in reflecting on the faculty members who agreed to participate in the study, you know, these are all individuals that both trained me and are now colleagues. And yeah, I would say there, I would have considered all of them approachable individuals. And so I think there, there is a, uh, certainly a challenge in, in accessing um, all of the folks uh, who who need to hear this message. Um, you know, I think Adam's suggestion about incorporating these messages um, at a department level is, is really helpful um, and necessary, but needs to be part of the conversation, certainly more than it is. And I think there's probably an element of, of sort of role modeling, you know, as we go through um, if I see one of my colleagues doing a or suggesting a debrief after a really difficult scenario or expressing their own uncertainty and I see how the rest of the team responds to that, you know, I be I may be more inclined to sort of wonder what's going on there and is that something that I can can replicate. So um, I think there is there is some benefit there, but without a doubt that's probably one of the greatest challenges to to kind of instituting us more of a spread of this information. But I like what you said there because it's very tempting to think we need to deal with the problem people. But pointing out the so-called positive deviance is important. And the story about Glenn Posner at the beginning is important. To put a name to that and say this is an example of for everybody in the operating theatre so that they realise what's happening here um, gives people a chance to replicate good behaviours, not just try and beat around the head the bad behaviours. So I think that's a, that's a part of it. All right, well, this is an ongoing conversation, I'm sure. Now, before we finish up the podcast, I guess I want to come back to what all this means uh, because both of you I'm sure are continuing your research in these areas and uh, this concept of sociologic fidelity and getting to the point where we can recreate power dynamics, human relationships, cultural norms uh, within a simulation environment. This is uh, I think exciting for research, it's exciting for practice and education uh, because it allows us to really get to a lot of the things that are strong predictors on performance. In fact, arguably much stronger predictors on performance than some of our clinical skills, Uh, but that's an argument for another day. But um, maybe, Adam, I can get you to go first. What does this mean for thinking about uh, using simulation as a testbed for exploring social phenomenon? And in particular, then a little bit more personally, what does it mean for your trajectory in in research? Um, I think it's a lovely and large question um, that, you know, in the sense that I think there is a growing amount of uh, research um, using simulation to study a specific and complex uh, social phenomenon. And um, I had the privilege of, of, of many years ago working with Taryn on a different uh, small uh, what works type paper uh, where we use simulation to study uh, the experiences of obstetrical residents and managing professional boundaries uh, in the context of patients utilizing social media and whatnot. And I think that, um, you know, in addition to uh, the few projects that I've been involved in, there there really is a growing body of work here. And we probably, as a community, will need to have a larger conversation about uh, what makes up so- sociologic fidelity and about, um, for example, incorporating deception um, into simulated experiences, which has been talked about. 
um, and uh, into the research that we do. Because, of course, it can be at odds with psychological safety, and we always have to weigh the cost-benefit of that uh, mindfully. Um, but I do think that it really, uh, using simulation as a priming event, can uh, in some ways standardize or focus um, the experience of a set of participants such that when we then ask them some questions, uh, we're, they're able to reflect concretely, perhaps on something that they actually did. Um, and, and as Taryn mentioned earlier, I think that can really deepen uh, the responses that we get and allow us to perhaps more specifically study um, a nuanced phenomenon. Mm, yeah. In relation to what that means for me uh, right now, uh, at this moment, I am actively uh, uh, refocusing uh, uh, my efforts on simulation, having just come out of the sort of accreditation and competence by design process uh, for, our, for our residency program. Uh, we're now working on building on some of the momentum with respect to uh, instituting a comprehensive team training program for our department. Um, and we're very much in the active design process uh, of that, making sure that it's sustainable and interprofessional and multidisciplinary and um, outcomes focused. And I am not yet sure how hierarchy uh, is going to play into it from a research perspective. But from a curriculum perspective, I know that it will. Yeah, and I think both. It's lovely if both can uh, happen in parallel, informing the other iteratively. Yeah, great. Uh, and and I think you you vaguely t giving the example of your prior work makes us think that this sociologic fidelity um, in some situations obviously extends to healthcare consumers as well. Uh, we focused on provider teams here, which is good work to do, and I, I can imagine it can also extend and be uh, in our work with simulated patients, and we can think more about that as well. Uh, all right, Taryn, uh, as a rounding out thing, can I ask you the same question? Where do we go from here using simulation as a research test? bed for complex social phenomena, do you think? I mean, I, for my part, am, am very much not willing to step away from the the design of the scenario that we've used. I don't think we've gotten all, we, I haven't gotten everything out of it quite yet. I mean, even just the one study that we did is, um, we could only tell one story with the manuscript that we wrote. There's, there's so much more there, um, including sort of these nuances around you know, people who are some of our participants who are uh, the obstetricians, rather, um, who were seemed or had the reputation for being safe and competent, um, were the ones that the team members were least likely to challenge because they had already established that these were competent individuals and therefore there must be something I'm missing and that therefore I don't have to challenge them. I can just, you know, go with what whatever they're they're saying. So I think there's lots of nuances to the story. And so we're actually going to be studying, doing a version of the study in different contexts, um, anesthesia and pediatric emergency departments being the two that we're moving on to next. And so I think the 
the challenge or the opportunity rather with this type of research is that, um, you know, we can't draw any generalizable conclusions from what we've done, uh, as you mentioned, but we can explore transferability. And so I think that is, that's one opportunity is to sort of change the, the context, see what's going on. Um, I would love to discover that there are maybe some positive deviants in the pediatric emergency world um, who have figured some of this out already and, and explore how we can um, use that to, again, role model for faculty in other, uh, in other contexts. So I think that's a big piece. And then I guess the other part that I'm interested in is, is actually the, the patient experience of witnessing the hierarchy. So a lot of our participants felt that um, they couldn't speak up because there was a, an awake patient and a patient partner in the room. Um, and so how that plays out and, and how that reflects our assumptions about what patients expect from our teams, I think has been underexplored. And I think simulation is a really interesting opportunity to to explore that further, to try and understand um, whether we've made the right guesses about what patients expect our teams to look like um, in those moments, or whether patients would actually be very grateful to, you know, witness a team member uh, speaking up um, or not. Um, so that that's sort of where I see this going. Mm, it's so interesting. I do a little bit of <clears throat> simulation with our maternity teams. And one of the things they've started doing in their sort of post uh, after after the women go home and they do a debrief with them about their birth experience, one of the questions I've started asking them is what did you think about the teamwork of the people you were involved in and the blinding insights that uh, that are there uh, are, very, are very important. But I really like your point there about context and I think this is quite interesting and you've talked a little bit about different professional settings but I also wonder about uh, cultural differences and obviously we've maybe even got near cultures of Australia and Canada, but I wonder how these things would play out in my own environment. I suspect there would be some differences. I think there'd be a lot of similarities. Uh, but we also know that even within our context, people bring different cultural norms as well uh, related to what their national backgrounds are and various other things. And so I think there's plenty of opportunity here to also just think about issues related to equity and diversity as well that uh, probably are going to overlap with this. Well, this is so interesting and uh, it's such a shame that we have to have an end to this conversation, but we do. Uh, so uh, Taryn Taylor, Adam Garber, it's been a pleasure to talk about hierarchy in healthcare and your incredible work in using simulation to explore these complex phenomena and to come up though I think with some really tangible outcomes about the experience of people at both sides and place on the spectrum of hierarchy. So can I thank you both for your research work and obviously for your time on the podcast today. Thank you indeed so much. It's a privilege to be here. And for Simulcast listeners, obviously, we'll have the links to uh, Adam and Taryn's papers uh, in the notes that accompany this episode. And uh, I have a feeling this won't be our last conversation on the topic. So this is Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. 